0: Hmm. Recorded live Hello, this is William Fink, and this is christiangenius Saturdays today is saturday february fourteenth two thousand and fifteen. Yes, I had to think about that a second. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening at first, I imagine I would make this um so far, four-part. No, I'm sorry. Today's the third part. There's 3 parts so far, presentation in one week. Then, when it went into two weeks, by that time I realized that three were inevitable. Now, I hope it will be finished in four weeks. I'm confident it will. Tonight won't be a very long presentation because I knew that what I had left, I could not say in two hours. So, we will need one more part. This is our third presentation of what we have loosely titled, The Devil of Martin Luther's Dreams, involving, uh, I'm sorry, invoking the myth that Luther had thrown his inkwell at the devil, literally. When indeed, he really threw his inkwell at the devil by spilling it out onto hundreds of pages of paper in his writings against both the Roman Catholic Church and the Jews. The purpose of these presentations is to describe the devil which Luther was railing against, a Roman Catholic Church fully infiltrated by humanists who scoffed at religion. They scoffed priests prebendaries, bishops that scoffed at Christianity, except as a device by which to fleece the common people of Europe, and especially the people of Germany. We've been discussing the humanists in the educational institutions and monasteries of Germany, and also of Italy, in the 15th and 16th centuries there are some things taken for granted which we had presumed that people would understand, and I'm sure most of our listeners did understand. There are some who did not. Among those things is that before the Reformation, for Christian Europeans, there was no advanced education outside of the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. The universities (coughs) And the monasteries were the educational system, and they all operated somewhere within the Roman Catholic Church structure. Therefore, humanists within the church, or humanists within the professorships, the teaching positions in the universities, were not a force which was contrary or opposed to or alternative to the established religion. But rather, they were inside of the established religion. And if they continued to prevail, they would change the entire church structure to something other than Christianity. And if the Roman Catholic Church continued to dominate European government, as it did, and European religion, and European education, then the people would have no choice but to submit to the whims of the humanists. In the background was the Jew, playing an influential role Throughout all of this, while avoiding any of the blame, the Rochlin, and, and last week I said Rochlin, and, and I'll get to that in a moment. I should say Rochlin. The Rochlin controversy is an excellent example which demonstrates that the humanists were not only sympathetic to the Jews but also supported them in their endeavor to openly practice their religion. Christians, on the other hand, knew that Judaism was forever contrary to Christianity, that Jews were the enemies of Christians and the enemies of God, and wanted to see Jewish books and learning destroyed. They only fell short of advocating the destruction of the Jews because Christianity itself had been poisoned with the notion that Jews were God's people in apostasy, which is certainly not true. However, even Martin Luther, as much as he had come to detest the Jews, even he was corrupted by the writings of crypto-Jewish converts who had spread such poison throughout Christianity. So we cannot defend the Roman Catholic Church in any way. First, it was an organization which was modeled on Roman imperialism, which in fact has absolutely nothing to do with the Christianity of the Apostles. Second, the Roman Catholic Church had departed from the Christianity of the apostles by accepting Jews and non-Europeans into its communion. Not only were Jews accepted, but Jewish rabbis who professed conversion were rapidly catapulted to positions of honor within the church, thereby facilitating the further corruption of Catholicism. Luther's devil was therefore much larger than the papacy itself, and his reformation would free Christians from the German and Italian humanists as well as the Pope. However, that too turned out to be a two-edged sword. German humanism evidently began to take root with the the development of the printing press and the propagation of the Greek and Roman classics. Identity Christians can certainly comprehend that the medieval church had a very imperfect understanding of Scripture, especially within its greater historical context. Yet it was the monasteries of Europe who, for the most part, had preserved the classics for posterity in the first place. Comprehending the Bible and the classics with our Christian identity why we should know that God is true and that the children of Israel, who were the progenitors of white Europeans and not merely Jews, strayed from God. The children of Israel strayed from God and that pagans, And humanist, Phoenician, Greek, Parthian, and Roman civilizations, as well as the British, the Celtic, the Northern Germanic, all resulted from their straying. Therefore, the Greek and Roman classics portray the result of men straying from God. The systems of the Greeks and Romans did not last, but rather they self-destructed in endless wars whose causes were rooted in the philosophies or in the ambitions of men. For instance, Athens and Sparta warred with each other for over 200 years before they were in turn conquered by Philip of Macedon. Then, even after that, they resumed their infighting until they were all conquered by Rome. All of this transpired several centuries before Christ. The philosophies of Epimenides, Epicurus, Zeno, Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle did the Greeks not any good at all. The Bible teaches that only God can be king. Only God can righteously make law. And when all men submit to God's law, then there shall be peace. The lesson which the classics should teach us is that departure from God, the humanist idea that men can build better societies and make better laws, shall always lead to failure. And destruction all the philosophies and histories of the classics are the chronicles they themselves are the chronicles of man's departure from God that's the big picture view of things but instead the German humanists read the classics and immediately began to pattern themselves after the same failed Greeks and Romans. Even, even with the Reformation, humanism remained influential in Germany. They did not learn the lesson because they didn't understand the historical context. So they repeated the same errors over again until we are where we are today. Once again held captive by the Babylonian beast which our fathers had failed to fully understand. The Germans broke free the Roman Church, but they are powerless to break free of that beast. Without Yahweh our God, we shall remain Powerless. We shall continue where we had left off in our last presentation with the the Reuchlin controversy. As an aside, I have often admitted my complete inability to correctly pronounce French and German words. I can hardly pronounce English words. A good friend and listener who was educated in such things has informed me that Johann Rooschlin's name, Rooschlin is how I think I said it last week, should be pronounced Reuchlin. that the EU in German always is pronounced as we would say, boy, I could never have guessed that. He's corrected me on such things in the past, and if I fail to listen, <clears throat> I'm certain that it's my own fault and not his. So tonight, I will try to remember to say, Reuslin. my paternal ancestors, I'm persuaded, only left Germany in 1836 to escape the language. And, and that's supposed to be a joke, and I've said it before. So we shall continue with the Reuslin controversy. Johann Reuslin, a German lawyer, a humanist, and a student of the Kamala, has taken up The defense of the Jewish writings, which many Christians wanted to see confiscated and burned. This is a conflict which had surfaced many times in Europe in the past. And later, Martin Luther would also, in 1543, right now we're in about 1512 and 1513, around there. Later, Martin Luther would also advocate that all of the Jewish writings are taken out of the hands of the Jews, if not utterly destroyed. When we discussed chapter 10 of Martin Luther's essay on the Jews and their lies, we said that in 1240 A.D., one of medieval Europe's earliest recorded self-hating Jews, whose name was Nicholas Donin, had reported to officials in France that the Talmud contained blasphemies against Christ. If this episode is reported correctly, it reveals just how ignorant European Christians had been of the Talmud for so long, in concert with just how effective Jewish secrecy in relation to their nature had also been. At this time, it is said that Jews were forced to surrender all of their copies of the Talmud, so that the charge could be investigated. This culminated in an event called the Disputation of Paris, which resulted in an order by the King of France, Louis IX, that all copies of the Talmud be confiscated and burned. With that, we could explain that even a year before that, Pope Gregory IX had already ordered burnings of the Talmud as early as 1239 A.D., and that there were further burnings of the Talmud in the centuries which followed, in Italy, Poland, and elsewhere. After 1242 A.D., the popes continued to advocate the burning of the Talmud. With the Inquisition in the 1550s, Talmud burning began to be advocated once again. However, there were other underlying motives, and that account is for a later time. Thus far in our presentation of the Reuchlin controversy, we have seen that Reuchlin, a lawyer who was also learned in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, was captivated by the Jewish Kabbalah, as well as pagan humanism, and had written books which attempted to reconcile the Kabbalah with Christianity. However, as we pointed out, Roschlin's persuasion really only leads the Christian to humanism, and his persuasion is anti-Christian at its core. His writings, which were embraced by the humanists, had instigated a harsh refutation by the Dominican monk, Jacob Hoogstraten, a prominent member of the theological faculty at the University of Cologne. There already being a controversy in Germany over the Jewish books, and Hoogstraten being in a position of authority within the Roman church hierarchy, which had the power to condemn such works as those of Reuchlin the exchange between Hoogstraten and Reuchlin would put Reuchlin at the center of the controversy over the Talmud. To complicate matters, a crypto-Jew, a supposed convert named Johann Seppercorn, got himself involved in the controversy on the side of the Cologne theologians led by Hoogstraten. And he wiggled himself into a leadership position through a a woman, through a duchess, where we had opined that with such a development, the result could not possibly be of any real benefit to Christians, but only to the Jews themselves. We may never be able to quantify that opinion, but we offer it nonetheless. The converso Jews should only be seen by true Christians as infiltrators out to corrupt Christianity and make it safe for antichrists. That's all they do. That's all they've ever done. On the other side, the humanists, and especially the most influential among them, such as Mudian, had fully supported Reuchlin and his work. It should be quite obvious that real Christians were attempting to stand against the Judaization of Europe, while the humanists, led by Reuchlin and Mudian, were in favor of it. For political reasons, even if they didn't really like it, as we will see Mudian profess later on this evening. Now, to follow this controversy... We shall continue to quote from the history of the German people at the close of the Middle Ages by Johann Janssen, John Janssen, I guess we would say in, in English. Volume 3, Book 5, published in an English translation by A.M. Christie in London in 1900. We left this story with a letter from the Cologne theologians urging Johann Reuschwan to repent and to correct his already published writings. In response, Reuchlin wrote back in a quite conciliatory manner. And as our historian noted, the controversy may have ended there. But where we pick up the story, we will find that Reuchlin, the Kabbalist lawyer, becomes quite recalcitrant his attitude changes, and he digs himself in to defend his position. In all of this, it seems that the humanists were indeed the best friends that the Jews could have, aside from those of their own, those of the Jews, who had so frequently managed to infiltrate and corrupt the church. Here we shall continue with this volume of the history of the German people from page 56. Within a few months, so wrote Hoogstraten later on, Reuchlin, under the influence of men who loved controversy and hated the church, completely changed his attitude. This is in reference to Reuchlin's conciliatory letter, which he had initially written, he completely changed his attitude and his language. On March 12, 1512, Reuchlin had said in a letter to Colin, if we remember from last week, Conrad Colin was Hoogstraten's fellow Dominican monk and another of the Cologne theologians, who had also for a long time been friendly to Roichland. Roichland said in a letter to Colin that it was not he who had begun the contention, referring to himself, but the Cologne theologians, or rather that baptized Jew goaded on by them, referring to Pfefferkorn, the Converso Jew. He had been betrayed and sold, but he feared nothing. Reuchlin, in that line, is actually elevating, comparing himself to Christ. He had been betrayed and sold, but he feared nothing, for he had powerful friends amongst nobles and commoners, and it would cause a tremendous sensation if an orator with the power of a Demosthenes, should set to work to unravel the tangled threads of this transaction and reveal to the world who among those concerned in it were friends of Jesus Christ and who were friends only of the purse. And among the number of my powerful protectors, he added emphatically, would be the poets and the historians numbers of whom honor me as they should as their former teacher. These men would keep in everlasting recollection the memory of so great a wrong committed against me by my enemies, who would hold me up as an innocent man to the eternal shame of your great university, meaning the University of Cologne. Royce was indeed a famous and great scholar, but he was also evidently from these words very vain and thought far too highly of himself. He actually thought he should perhaps get away with promoting the Kabbalah in Christian classrooms, which is which is satanic from any Christian perspective. That's my opinion. We'd already noted that Reuchlin indeed appeared to be a pious Christian. But he was nevertheless <clears throat> promoting humanism rather than true Christianity. However, being trained as a lawyer, he may not have known the difference. So instead, he was really becoming a dupe for the Jews. He was a student of Hebrew who became enamored with the Kabbalah and imagined that through one's own enlightenment, a man could elevate himself to the position of God. He claimed in his works that that's how Christ became his God, basically denying the fact that Christian theologians understood that Christ was God incarnate from the beginning. Reuchland's profession is humanism, and it is Judaism, and it is wholly irreconcilable to Christianity, and it is hostile to the God of the Bible. We had already noted that Sephichcorn, inserting himself into a position of authority in this manner, only makes a target of convenience for Reuchlin. This too, however, betrays the divided mind of the German humanist, who could despise a Jew for being a Jew, as Reuchlin in his letters clearly despised Pfefferkorn just because he was a Jew. And then he embraced, wholly embraced, the Jewish ideas of the Kabbalah and adopted them as his own. And now he goes on to defend the Jewish books as a whole. The mind of Reuchlin was divided against itself, and Reuchlin being a German humanist and a friend of pagans, we shall see that German pagans are indeed the Jews' best friend. Book. In a later pamphlet, written in German, Reuschland maintained all these objectionable passages and attacked the Cologne faculty indirectly by spiteful insinuations. The Cologne the- theologians, however, were anxious to keep the people in ignorance of this controversy And accordingly, Arnold von Tungern drew up an answer in Latin and attempted to expose Reuchlin's heterodox opinions. This pamphlet was on the whole moderate. And in the dedication to the emperor, von Tungern said that he had written thus against Reuchlin, because the later in his Augenspiegel, had favored the Jews unjustly. Augenspiegel was a defense Reuschland had written in defense of his own books inviting the Kabbalah and its teachings into Christianity. Reuchlin in his Augenspiegel, had favored the Jews unjustly and encouraged them in their antagonism to the Christians, and also because Reuchlin had not kept his promise, as he had written in his first conciliatory letter, and withdrawn the objectionable passages pointed out to him, but had tried to intimidate the Cologne theologians by the threat that he had a strong host at his back to support him. They were not, however to be frightened by the menaces. And we see that Roislin, in his second letter, had threatened the theologians with all of these great people that he claimed would back him up, and many of these powerful friends did indeed come to his support, all of them humanists and pagans. Cephricorn, in response to Roislin. Pfefferkorn took a different line, incensed by the insults of Reuschland, who had spoken of him in his last pamphlet as a man who took a strange delight in lying, had made a violent attack on the great Hebraist, referring to Reuchlin, in his bronze spiegel. The angry scholar was all the more infuriated by this step because on October 7, 1512, the emperor Maximilian had issued a prohibition against the Augenspiegel and had ordered its seizure on pain of heavy punishment, meaning the defense of his books that Reuchlin had written. It was a banned book, according to the emperor. Reuchlin now published a defense against his Cologne calumniators which was one of the most violent specimens of the party polemics of the day. It was not for zeal for the faith, he declared in his dedication to the emperor, that had moved the Cologne theologians to proceed against him, but a desire to injure and annihilate him personally. His opponents were not theologians, but theologists, Men who were concerned not with the establishment of truths, but with empty verbal disputations. Men who, far from striving after moral purity, defiled themselves with scandal of all sorts. And, and Reuchlin's words may be somewhat true of the Converso Jew peppercorn, but they are patently unfair to Hoogstraten or to Conrad Collin or even to Arnold von Tungern none of whom apparently requested the involvement of a peppercorn in the first place. Reuchlin had argued in his initial two books that man can elevate himself to the level of God through the Kabbalah, and that's humanism, and any Christian theologian should understand Jesus Christ manifested himself as God. He did not become God because he lived a moral life or because he was enlightened philosophically, which is Roichland's argument. Reuchlin being trained as a lawyer, may not have really understood at all the evil nature of his argument because of his basically humanist education. And a lot of these... um Catholic priests and Catholic scholars at this time were already receiving humanist educations and not Christian educations at all, even though their teachers were operating under the guise of the Catholic Church, men like Erasmus, who we talked about at length, in the first episode of this presentation, of this series of preposet- presentations, Erasmus was a famous Catholic priest, so-called scholar, and he, too, was a humanist. And he's in the background. We're going to get to come full circle and talk about Erasmus again, I, I, I hope, at the end of these presentations, but Erasmus is in the background here cheering on Reuchlin and the humanists. Moreover, it was his experience of old, Reuschland speaking of himself in defense, that the just were always persecuted by the unjust, trying to take the moral high ground. He goes on to say, Homer himself had had to fight an unworthy opponent. And now he's compared, first he compares himself to Christ, then he brags about all his friends, then he compares himself to Homer. Um, He's referring to the alleged rivalry between Homer and the poet Hesiod and, and betraying his own huge ego. He goes on to say, There was always a swarm of vilifiers at the heels of every man of note. The Jewish book question had only been taken up Thus, by the Cologne theologians, in order to extort money from the Jews. And, and that's totally unfair, because there's absolutely no indication of that motive. And it's clear that Reuchlin is the one who is defending the Jews. So he's just casting dispersions. They hunger and thirst after Jewish gold, he said. May it be showered on them. They may banish or burn every Jew in a country for all I care, so long as they leave me in peace and in quiet. And if that was really his his attitude, he shouldn't have been advocating the Kabbalah. Back to our historian. The, accusi- the accusation against him of having falsely interpreted certain passages of the Bible and of the classical writings, he declared to be quite unjustifiable. It was allowable to explain such passages in a different sense from that in which they had been written and understood by the authors. And, And this is the problem with Christianity, right? It's this sort of thinking. To recast the meaning, as it were, provided the natural signification was not made to suffer by the process, and Reuschland's profession leads to an acceptance of relativism, which is a profession that humanism must indeed admit because of its own basic premise. The historian goes on to say, the reproach of perverting Meanings came strangely, he said, from the lips of men like his opponents, these are the words of Reuchlin being recounted, who were incapable of either understanding or appreciating either the Bible or the classical writings. Apart altogether from their deficiencies of scholarship and knowledge, the simple processes of accurate thought were unknown to them. They were wanting in understanding of logic. They could not follow his arguments and distorted them in order to refute them. And they were not only wanting in the capacity for understanding him, but also in the wish to do so. He called them foolish sheep, bucks, sows, pigs, said they were less human than wild beasts, that they were scholars of the devil frequenters of the lower regions, animated by fiendish pride, and so on, through all the vocabulary of opprobrious invective that he could muster. And then, ended by saying, they would wonder that he had dealt so so mildly with his enemies that he had borne their insults without rejoinder, that he had not met their fury with fury, their content with contempt, their calumnies with calumnious retorts. But he would scorn to act in the same manner that they had. He prayed God to save them from the torments of hell. His soul revenge would be to hand down to posterity the name of his adversary, hewn thus in marble, Arnold von Tungern, slanderer and vilifier. And of course, Reuchlin actually did everything here, which he then denied doing. Interestingly, the editor of our history notes here that Reuchlin was, so far as the art of polemic is concerned, the precursor of Luther himself. While the truth of that statement is somewhat apparent, Luther did better to use his polemics against the actual enemies of Germany while Reuslin was defending them. To continue with our book from page 59, it is to the credit of Pfefferkorn, that after he had received Roichlin's insulting letter, he sought him out at Stuttgart in order to confront him in a court of justice before his prince, the Duke of Württemberg, but he never met him. The emperor, to whom Roichlin had sent his pamphlet, issued the following edict from Koblenz on July 9, 1513. This is Maximilian. Whereas, on the occasion of some proceedings begun by him, meaning the emperor, against the Jewish books, but left only half completed, and we presented those here last week, owing to the pressing business, certain pamphlets had been published by Reuchlin which were opposed to the emperor's undertaking, and especially a more recent one, which had heaped insults on the Dominicans of Cologne, and on Arnold von Tungern in particular, and whereas this last pamphlet was calculated to stir up ill-feeling among the people, he, meaning the emperor, commissioned the archbishops of Cologne, Mayence and Treves, and the chief inquisitors to see what to see that whatever this said pamphlet was discovered it was instantly seized and its sale prevented. Wherever this said pamphlet was discovered, it was to be instantly seized and its sale prevented. The theological faculties of Louvain, Cologne, Mayence, Erfurt, and Paris also condemned the Augenspiegel. The chief inquisitor, Hoogstraten, commenced proceedings against Reuschland. Reuchlin appealed to Pope Leo X, now Pope Leo X is really the humanist and most likely crypto-Jew, Giovanni de' Medici. Reusland's about to put the fix in. Reuchlin appealed to Pope Leo X against the edict for the suppression of his book, And in order to secure a favorable hearing at the court of Rome, he addressed a most servile letter to Leo's Jewish physician, Bonnet de Lattes. I'm not going to say that right. I know it. He explained that. In opposition to the verdict of the Cologne faculty, which had condemned the Jewish books to be destroyed, he had defended their utility. And that was the reason why the Dominicans of Cologne hated and persecuted him. He went over the emperor's head to, Leo, to, to Giovanni de Medici's Jewish physician. And it worked. The humanist Reuchlin, a defender of Jews, who bragged about having all those pagans to protect him, ultimately appeals for help to a Jew. I'm not surprised. The Pope handed the matter over to the young Bishop of Spires, George Count Palatine, who, on his part, having little knowledge of the subject under dispute, commissioned his prebendary, a prebendary is a senior administrative priest in a Catholic church, George Truxus, a pupil of Reuchlin's to determine the rights of it. So evidently the Jewish court physician was certainly able to prescribe the fix for Reuchlin. The verdict of the later was as follows, that the Augenstegel, which we've just seen was, was condemned by a host of Christian universities, that the Augenspiegel was quite free from heresy and was neither slanderous nor irreverent nor too friendly to the Jews, and that it might safely be distributed and read everywhere, that Hoogstraten had been unfair to it, and that he should be punished by a fine and bound over to silence on this subject forevermore. Why would I not be surprised that the Dima Pope and his Jewish doctor had sided with Reuschland? Here we have another note by the editors which states that Concerning these proceedings, only the one-sided accounts of Reuchlin and his friends have hitherto become known. So the historian is piecing this together from the letters of Reuchlin and those who corresponded with him, who were friendly to him at this time, and evidently, any writings on the matter by the Cologne theologians or Maximilian's court or other parties have been lost. To continue from the very bottom of page 60 of our book, Hoogstraten, in his turn, then appealed to the Pope and the later appointed Cardinal Gramani to be the judge. On June 15, 14, In June 1514, Gramani summoned the contending parties to Rome, Hoogstraten was to appear in person, but Reuchlin, on account of his age, might be represented by his consul, probably some Jewish lawyer. Hoogstraten responded at once to the summons, but the case dragged on from year to year. In vain, the Archduke Karl, who was afterwards emperor, he became Charles V., the same Charles V who later rejected Martin Luther at the Deed of Worms. In vain, the Archduke Karl represented to the Pope in 1515 that the mischief only increased the longer the settlement of the case was delayed, that a decision ought to be arrived at speedily in order to avert the ruin of the Christian population, and to clear away all stumbling blocks from the paths of the weaker brethren. Reuchlin had influential patrons at Rome, both secular and clerical. The Pope, foreseeing no danger, remained inactive. Of course, Leo X, Giovanni de' Medici, for most of his career was really only interested in Italian politics. According to our editor, among the the patrons of Reuschland at Rome was Stefan Rossinus, who was the chaplain to Emperor Maximilian and was also his official agent in Rome. This Stefan Rosinus was also a Jesuit. He was a humanist, and he was a member of a prominent circle of humanists in Vienna, led by Thomas Resch, which our editors did not know. In Germany, however, getting back to our book, That which the Cologne theologians had predicted in 1514 had meanwhile come to pass. If the levity of the poets in these manners which concern the faith is not checked, the theologians had written, they will grow more and more unscrupulous in attacking the truths of Theology. While the older humanists, such as Jacob Winfling and Sebastian Brandt, although on friendly terms with Roischland, in no way concurred in these proceedings of his, they did not support the Jewish books, evidently. The poets or younger humanists, on the contrary, rallied around him in large numbers and urged him forward to the fight. It was owing to their influence indeed that this formerly grave and dignified scholar changed both his attitude and his language and used weapons against the Cologne theologians which were otherwise foreign to his nature and character. Seemingly, from the tone of those last letters, Roeschlin's vanity got the better of him. These poets now banded together for the first time in a close federation. So the Roeschlin controversy has basically caused the humanist pagans to organize. These poets, now banded together for the first time in a close federation, made use of the Royschland complications in their warfare against church authority, against clerical scholastic learning, and above all, against the Dominican orders, whose members perpetuated in all the universities the traditional learning of the schoolman. So it was the protection of the religious writings of the Jews which united the pagan humanist poets against the defenders of Christian Germany in the opening decades of the 16th century. Martin Luther, in himself a former humanist, in turn, endeavored to save Germany both from humanist and from Jews. I must add that today, pagans attacking Christians are once again doing the work of the Jews. Roman Catholicism did not represent true Christianity. Neither do these modern Judeo-Christian churches which are controlled by the Jews. However, in the end, only true Christianity is ever going to bring together real white men and deliver us from the satanic Jew. And of course, only Christ can do that. Returning to our history on page 62, their campaign against these monks was greatly assisted by their publishing abroad in Latin and German pamphlets the story of a crime which four Dominicans had committed by means of sham spiritual apparitions, mechanically contrived. The case had been brought before the ecclesiastical court and conducted by the bishops of Lausanne and Sitten and the legate appointed by Pope Julius II, and sentence of death pronounced. The monks had been stripped of their sacerdotal garb in the open marketplace by the legate, and had been pronounced unworthy of their priestly dignity, and handed over to the arm of the secular law for execution. The scandalous incident was now also used against the ecclesiastical dignitaries and the clergy in general. All monks and Ecclesiastes are liars and deceivers, cried the poets. All men of culture must join in battle against them. And of course, the poets are using a case which was already several years old to discredit the Dominican monks. But the use of a case such as this against an institution where the institution had clearly corrected itself, and where such a very small number of its members had been involved, is patently unfair. It's just a case that was convenient. The generalship of these poets, back to our book, right? The generalship of these poets was assumed by Mudian. Now, in earlier portions of this presentation, we discussed beauty at length. He was one of the most notable and active of the leaders of the younger poets, as the German humanists were calling themselves. He was a Roman Catholic priest and a prebendary who had assumed the leadership of the rising generation of humanists as our historian informs us on page 32 of this volume, which we've already discussed and presented. The generalship of these poets was assumed by Mutian. After having written to Petraeus in October 1512 that, as Reuchlin's eulogist, he meant to take up his cause... When Tungern's pamphlet appeared, he decided that the time had come when prudence required a change of front. In other words, he didn't want to make a public position because Tungern was involved. He was scared. To his most intimate friends, however, he confessed secretly that the condemnation of Roichlin appeared to him just. The later he said in his criticism of the Jewish books, had written in a style far more presumptuous than the occasion required. He had recollected, he had collected together odious and criminal matter to support his opinion, and had assumed in the most preposterous manner an air of omniscience. So Mudian did not like what Rouschling did, how he did it anyway, but nevertheless, he's going to support him. Nonetheless, however, did Mutian, from hatred of the barbarians, as he calls the scholastic monks, commend most zealously to the favor of the humanists the very cause which he had himself condemned, Reuchlin's cause. So the pagan humanist priest, Mutian, and that's what he is, he's a prebendary in the Catholic Church who was earning his very living from the people of Germany in the name of religion. Yet, he would become the friend and defender of the Jewish religion as a matter of convenience, because he had an issue with the church and did not have the backbone to reform it. He was a pagan humanist anyway. He couldn't reform it. Today, 500 years later, because Mutian turned all of these German pagans against Christianity in favor of the Jews, today, 500 years later, Jews on the banks, Jews on the media, Jews control all of the Western governments, and pagans are their play toys. Mutian didn't do us. Mutian and his whole band of German humanists didn't do us any favors. Back to Mutian. May the gods exterminate the theologians. Well, the Jews sure as hell tried to. I don't know if they're gods. May the gods exterminate the theologians, he exclaimed to his friends. They must not enjoy the protection of the law. They have forfeited every claim to justice. He enlarged his secret league and wrote to Reuchlin Every day, brave youths come pouring in. Now he's keeping a secret league and he won't take a public position, and he's talking to Roichland about these brave youths, when he, in fact, is a coward. Every day, brave youths come pouring in. In whose hearts and mouths your name lives, all his friends wrote letters to Reuchlin exhorting him to persevere in his attacks on the retrobate race of Cologne theologians. One of them addressed him with the words, "Holy Father, peace be with thee." Another called him a Hercules, victorious over the barbarian monster. Crotus Rubianus. Now, Crotus Rubianus was a good friend of Martin Luther's when Martin Luther was tied up with the with the humanists before he went to the monastery. Crotus Rubianus wrote to him in 1514. It is no doubt through the providence of the gods that this strife has broken out. They delight to strengthen through suffering those whom they love, but be tranquil. You are not alone in the fight. You have on your side the great scholar, Mutian. You have the whole of Mutian's flock, philosophers, orators, poets, theologians, all devoted to you, all ready to fight in your cause. Iobanus is endowed with the divine gift, Iobanus. That was another one of those German poets that hated his real German name. Eobanus, if it was indeed German, if it wasn't Jewish. Eobanus is endowed with a divine gift. He is an admired and successful poet. In my friend Ulrich von Hutten. Fiery zeal is coupled with sagacity. Only speak the word. We are ready to serve you at a moment's notice. Eobanus composed a poem in praise of Rochelam, in which he called him the tamer of monsters. And he wrote to him in 1515, The Senate of the Republic of Learning has decreed your triumph. May the gods destroy the wicked ones and wipe their memory from the face of the earth. They deserve that all good men should hate them, for they are not only persecutors of learning, but also corruptors of divine religion. I have just polished off some slashing iambics against those cologne demons. That's what you call them, is it not? And I'm going to write some more and send them to you when the time comes. I take courage at the thought that I do not stand alone. I have hopes that Hutton, Bush, Crotus, and Spalatin, and your countrymen, Philomusis, and Melanchthon, and a good many others besides, will join with me in the pieing of victory. A pieing being a more or less a victory song. Your enemies, wrote Hermann von den Busch to Reuchlin after the decision of the Bishop of Spires. That's the decision that the that de' Medici's Jewish physician had arranged. After the decision of the Bishop of Spires, look the very picture of frantic envy and hatred. They roll their eyes, gnash their teeth, groan and sigh. Be of good courage, I say once more. You will soon see all the malice of your adversaries confounded. Ulrich von Hutten wrote to him in the same encouraging strain on January 13th, 1517. Be calm, he says. I am gathering associates to the cause whose age and circumstances are equal to the occasion. You will soon look out from a house of laughter on the melancholy tragedy of your fallen enemies. Take heart, take heart, a train is being laid which at the auspicious moment will kindle into a conflagration. So the Catholic priest turned humanist pagan, Mudian, and all of his followers zealously began to defend the cause of Reuschland and also are defending the cause of the religion of the Jews, which is the real issue here. The Jews themselves must have been gleeful with these German pagans. However, we cannot imagine all of the supposedly pagan humanists to have had the same motives. Many of them were apparently Jews themselves and used humanism in the same manner in which the Jewish converts to the church used Christianity for the furtherance of Jewish causes. Note that many of the names among the followers of Mutian listed here were those same so-called poets who despised their own supposedly German heritage, changing their names for those of dead Romans and Greeks. While it would be difficult to prove how many of these were actually Jews, this is an ideal practice for Jews who would want to hide their true identity. But neither can we say that all of the desires or grievances of the humanists were wrong. It's a two-edged sword, right? The Roman Catholic Church was indeed a tyranny, but the Dominicans themselves were victims of that tyranny as much as anyone else. Blaming Christianity for the church is a is itself a crime of ignorance. The Dominicans were defenders of Christian tradition and German culture in spite of a Roman church tyranny. In turn, in addition to supporting the cause of the Jews, the humanists were offering pagan immorality and licentiousness as an alternative to so-called Roman Catholic oppression. Once again, Martin Luther saved Germany from either consequence. And for better or worse, both Christians and humanists had benefited. True Christian liberty is indeed a two-edged sword, as the apostles themselves had also warned. Here, our historian turns us to the story of Ulrich von Hut one of Mutian's humanists, which we shall continue to follow as we turn from the details of the Reuchling controversy to the presence of humanists in the courts of the papacy and the archbishops of Germany. I'm sorry, von Hutten is going to be our bridge from one aspect of this history to the other. Returning to our history on page 65, Ulrich von Hutten, the writer of that last letter, quoted to Reuschland, Scion of a Franconian knightly family, was born in 1488 at the castle of Steckelberg. It was his father's wish that he should be dedicated to the church, and in his 11th year he was placed at the monastic school of Fulda to be educated in fifteen o four or fifteen o five however, at the instigation of crotus Rubianus and this is at the time when Martin Luther was just going into the monastery, and he was a humanist partner and friend of this Crotus Rubianus so Rubianus lost one friend one humanist friend of the monastery and pulled another one out of the monastery, apparently. In 1504 or 1505, at the instigation of Crotus Rubianus, he ran away from Fulda, and he could have been no older, no older than 17 years at the time, and for many years led the life of a traveling literate, going from one university to another in North and South Germany, and visiting also the universities of Italy often in extreme poverty and presenting the most wretched appearance. Owing to dissolute living, he remained a prey to ill health from the year 1508. He suffered tortures from painful ulcers and was often reduced to such a pitiable condition that a friend once advised him to commit suicide. We'd probably all be better off. He was utterly wanting in moral discipline and self-restraint, like most of the pagan humanists. Even his friends were often alarmed at the fire of excitement and irritability, ever ready to flame out in this fussy, insignificant-looking little man. The slightest word, wrote Mutian, puts him in a frenzy. His brilliant powers and fine humanistic culture filled him with such inordinate self-conceit that he came to regard himself as the initiator of a new era and considered all his thoughts and actions as of epic making importance. His, his genius, however, as our historian comments, was essentially destructive. Whatever stood in the way of this misty, undefined phantom of liberty which he had set up as his ideal, he looked upon as tyranny and oppression and strove with all his might to overthrow. In his behavior to his gainsayers, All means and measures appeared to him legitimate, distortion of facts, lies, slanders, and calumny. He was incapable of being inspired by a great or generous idea. Contempt and ridicule of the church, its teaching, and its ordinances, Hutton had learned from the Erfurt humanists, into whose circle he had been introduced by Crotus Rubianus. In a short time, he became a zealous and impassionate follower of Budian. This is the same circle at Erfurt University that Martin Luther had come out of. He looked on a holy man as a common leader of all those who were in a league against the barbarians, and he kept up a correspondence with him through all his wandering. Hutton was so early saturated with the pagan, anti-Christian spirit that in an elegy to the gods, in which he bewails his misery to them and calls on them to avenge him, he mixes up with the heathen deities the Christ acquainted with suffering. Another noteworthy production, and, and, and I would say that von Hutton certainly probably had a humanist education even in the monastery which he attended. Another noteworthy production of Hutton's is a consolatory poem addressed in the year 1515 to the father of his cousin, Hans von Hutton, equerry to the Duke. Ulrich of Württemberg, who had just been murdered by the Duke. The poem is essentially from a pagan point of view. Christians, he says, are of course bound to believe that the soul lives on after death, but even if it perished with the body, death would be no evil, as it puts an end to all suffering. And of course, the original pagans believed also in Greek and Rome and in Germany that the soul lived on after death, just like Christians. However, the Greek philosophers had later disputed it. To the papacy, Hutton had vowed the bitterest enmity during his first sojourn in Italy in 1513, when he composed his epigrams against that corrupter of the world, that pest of the human race, Pope Julius II. This was also, 1513 was also the year that Julius II had died to be replaced with the humanist Giovanni di Medici called Leo X. While it had already been happening in Italy long before even it had gone on in Germany, in our next presentation we shall see how Hutton was openly advocating the infiltration of the courts of the bishops by humanists, and how he himself had done so. Doing that, we hope to finally describe how humanists had fully populated the courts of Leo X and the German archbishops. And then we shall discuss the Fifth Lateran Council, which had inspired Martin Luther to take the final drastic measures, which he did, breaking from the Roman Church completely in what would then spark what is called the Reformation, but which was really not a Reformation at all. It was a breaking clean of a corrupt institution, which could not be reformed. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I will be here next Friday. I'm going to leave the schedule open. I don't know what I want to do next Friday. Next Saturday, open lines, and I hope we get some callers other than the, the regular Jewish trolls. Good night.